Well, when I was growing up, what I wanted to be changed from year to year, from month to month, but it was pretty much always science-related. Like a lot of kids, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, Let's face it, I still want to be an astronaut. I would volunteer to be the first chaplain on the Mars colony, if that's available. Uh, But growing up, I would have settled for being an astronomer or a paleontologist. That happened after I watched Jurassic Park or a meteorologist after I watched Twister. Um, Or I wanted to work at a particle accelerator because I visited Fermilab. Uh, And by fifth grade, I was pretty much always carrying around a textbook for either biology, chemistry, or physics, which is the reason I had so many friends. (laughs) So as a kid, my, my vision of what I would do for work changed all the time. But like most people, what some things about my future, I didn't really question. I thought, well, I I think I'm going to be married and I'm going to have kids. And and a lot of people assume that that's just going to be a part of your future. And not only do we assume that's going to be a part of our future, but we have a story of how it's going to happen. You know, Uh, we're going to finish school. We're going to meet somebody. We're going to date for a little while. And then somewhere in our 20s, we're going to get married. And after that, maybe have a few kids and live happily ever after. Uh, That's the story we pick up from the culture around us. But what happens if the story doesn't go that way? Uh, Nobody really talks to us all that much growing up about what to think about singleness. Like, what do you do with a a long stretch of your life when you're not married? Or what do you do if you never get married? Or your marriage ends earlier than you expect? Uh, Is there a, a purpose and a meaning for singleness beyond just being a waiting period for marriage? What is singleness actually for? Well, today is the second week in a two-week teaching on the topic of singleness. Uh, Last week, we talked about some of the negative messages that people pick up uh, about singleness. Uh, We talked about how being single does not mean being incomplete or being alone or being forsaken by God. Uh, Today, we're going to kind of do the flip side. We're going to talk about the positive side uh, of singleness. And these two weeks really are meant to go hand in hand. Uh, I'm assuming that singleness is a good thing, a gift from God, and God has a purpose for it. Uh, But if you're struggling with your singleness, and it's uh, something that's really hard for you, I would encourage you to go check out uh, last week's message online. Well, today, uh, we're going to be looking at a passage in one of the letters of Paul in 1 Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, You know, one of the interesting things about Christianity is it's one of the first social movements, really the first social movement, where singleness was widespread and normal for adults in the movement. Uh, In most times and places, uh, including the culture of Jesus' day, marriage was the norm, and being single came with a a lot of social costs. But because Jesus was single, uh, that meant that the early Christian movement had a lot of single people in it, including some of its most prominent leaders, the most famous of which is actually the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul spent uh, most of his life traveling around the Roman Empire. He went from city to city, uh, sharing the good news of Jesus with people. And everywhere he went, he tried to start churches, little communities of Christ followers uh, in every place where he could. Uh, one of those places was the city of Corinth. It was a, a Roman colony in, the, in Greece. Uh, and 1 Corinthians is one of uh, several letters that he wrote uh, to this little church as they struggled with different problems in their community. Uh, The Corinthians had actually sent Paul a letter prior to this one uh, where they were asking a bunch of questions. And a lot of those questions had to do with sex and marriage and singleness. And so Paul's actually answering those questions directly here in chapter 7. Now, Corinth was a pretty wild place when it came to sex. Uh, Prostitution was not just legal, but acceptable and pretty commonplace. Uh, It was incorporated into their feasts and their festivities uh, throughout the city. And so when people came to Christ out of this background, they tended to have uh, one of two reactions to their sexual past. 
Either they continue to struggle with sexual temptation and even made excuses for continuing in that behavior, or they went the total opposite direction and they became really suspicious of anything that had to do with sex or the body or pleasure. Uh, they even got to the point where some people were saying, it is not good for a man to have sex with a woman, even if they're married. Uh, and they were advocating celibate marriages. Now, as you can imagine, that created a little bit of controversy. Uh, and so they wrote to Paul to ask about it. And this is where chapter seven picks up. The first six verses, Paul is uh, basically making it really clear. Yes, it is okay for couples to have sex. That is a good thing. In fact, they should have frequent sex. That's great. But then he turns the corner and says something that's a little bit unexpected. He says, as good as sex in marriage is, he says, I actually wish more people were single like I am. Let's pick it up in verse seven. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. If you were here last week, you know that this is such a strange statement in Paul's culture and in our culture. Uh, the idea that it would be preferable to remain single is, for most people, an odd thought. Uh, there are some people in our culture who might say something like, well, you know, I, I'm willing to date someone or be in a relationship. I'll, I'll even live with them or sleep with them, but, you know, I just don't need marriage. I don't need the official thing. But even when people say that, they're, what they're not saying is, I'm going to remain romantically unattached, and, and I'm not going to have sex with anybody. I'm going to see this as a good thing, a preferable option. But what Paul's saying here is not something that's anti-marriage. Uh, he, he, after all, is the one who said in the book of Ephesians that uh, marriage is an image of the love between Christ and the church, his people. So marriage is a big deal for Paul. But what he's saying here is marriage is not for everybody. And the way he puts it is that each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that gift. Now, I should tell you that biblical scholars have uh, debated what this verse means. What does Paul mean when he talks about singleness and marriage being gifts? Uh, some people say singleness, the gift of singleness, is a skill, and other people say it's a state. Uh, the first group, the people who say it's a skill, uh, they look at his language about gifts, and they think, well, he's talking about a spiritual gift. Uh, it's kind of like when we say someone has uh, the gift of teaching, or the gift of leadership, or the gift of prophecy. What we mean is they have a special ability to do a certain activity really well. Sort of like when we say, oh, that person's such an amazing singer. They've really got a gift. So some scholars, they, they think what Paul is saying here is that there are some people who have a unique supernatural ability to thrive in their singleness. It's like the superpower of not being married. Usually people describe this gift as being content without sex and not having a desire to be married. And so in this view, if you've got that gift of singleness, uh, you should remain single. But if you don't have that, you should get married. Uh, other scholars, they look at this passage and they say, no, I, I don't think Paul's talking about a skill, a special ability. He, he's talking about people's life situation as being a blessing, being a good thing. It's sort of like if you've got a friend that you're really thankful for and you say, oh, their friendship is such a gift in my life. Or, or you get a, a great job and you say, it was such a gift to land this job. It has nothing to do with your abilities. It's the circumstance itself, uh, which is th the gift. So they say the state of being single is the gift. So which is it? Now, I'm going to argue for the second one, not the first. Uh, the gift of singleness is not an ability. It's the state of singleness itself. And here's the main reason why I say that. We don't say that marriage is a, an ability either. 
okay? Uh, when Paul says that marriage is a gift, we, we don't say, well, you know, I've been given this supernatural ability to be really, really good at marriage. We don't say that. And if you think you've got that gift, try telling your spouse that, okay? You know, you're so lucky you've got me. I got the gift. I got it. It's really common for people to say things like, you know, my wife is a gift from God. My husband is a gift from God. That's what we mean when we talk about the gift of marriage. The state itself is an expression of God's goodness in your life. Uh, Paul is saying the same thing about singleness. He's saying it, the state itself is an expression of God's goodness in your life. So how do you know if you've got the gift of singleness? Are you single? You got the gift. But in what way is singleness a gift? And to understand why Paul would say this, we've really got to uh, remember what Jesus said in the passage we looked at last week. He uses this image of eunuchs, and he says, there are some people who have chosen to live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And this is the key. It's for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the reason the New Testament authors say that singleness is a gift is because they're looking at it from a kingdom perspective. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, uh, what we're talking about is the rule of Jesus Christ over every area of life. Uh, one day, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to set himself up as king over everything. Uh, he's going to restore the world. He's going to heal his people. He's going to put everything back together the way it was meant to be. That's going to be his kingdom. But even here and now, we can experience a bit of the kingdom in the present. Anytime that we surrender a part of our life to Jesus as our king. So in a way, we're living in this kind of overlapping time where the kingdom has already come in some ways, but the current order of things has yet to be done away with. And this is important to keep in mind as we talk about this passage. Paul's reasons that we're going to look at in a minute, uh, why singleness is a gift, don't make sense unless you value the things that are valuable in the kingdom. Singleness exists for kingdom purposes. We're going to look at two of those purposes today from this passage. Here's the first one. First one, singleness is for showing the kingdom. It's for showing the kingdom. Uh, now, I'm just going to warn you, I submitted my outline for the weekly welcome um, and then changed my mind about what I wanted in there. Uh, and so we, it got printed and it's wrong. Uh, the verses are right, but the, uh, the fill in the blank things are wrong. So uh, I apologize about that. If you're using the app, uh, it, we got it corrected in there. Um, but the first point is this, singleness is for showing the kingdom. Let's read what Paul says about this in verse 25. Now about virgins, and before I get too long, let me explain this one. Um, when he uses the word virgin in this passage, he's not uh, talking mostly about someone's uh, sexual experience. He's talking about someone who has not yet been married. Uh, so he's assuming that people who are doing it right have not had sex before they've gotten married. Uh, but what he's saying here uh, applies to anyone who has not yet been married, uh, even if they have had sex. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And those, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now, let, let me walk through this paragraph here and untangle some things. What Paul's doing in this paragraph is addressing a very specific situation that the Corinthians are facing. Uh, what happened in the year that Paul wrote this was there was a famine in the city of Corinth. And there are other ancient historians who talk about this, this famine. So there was a food shortage in the city. And so when Paul talks about this present crisis in verse 26, uh, that's exactly what he's referring to. 
So what he's doing is he's giving advice to engaged couples, and he's saying, you know, I know you probably want to be married, but now is kind of an inconvenient time to start a life together. It's going to be real tricky, so you might want to wait until all of this kind of blows over. And then he goes on in verse 28 to say, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now, let me make it clear what he means in that sentence. Uh, what he's not saying is this. Uh, it's something that married people often say to single people in some sort of twisted way to offer some encouragement. They say, oh, you know, being married, it's, it's not as great as people talk about it. Like, it can be a real hassle, you know? Like, you got to make decisions with another person. you got to learn to live with another person. And, you know, you, you have fights and stuff. It's tough. It's hard work being married. Yeah, and don't even get me started on kids. It's hard. That's not what Paul is doing here. That's not what he's talking about. Because let's face it, everybody, single, married, otherwise, uh, everybody has ordinary daily challenges with people and relationships and responsibilities. A lot of people, single people would say, you know what, I would rather have the challenges of being married than the challenges of being single. And I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is actually saying is that when a true crisis hits, having uh, having a spouse or children usually complicates the response. The, the kind of situations he's thinking about are things like a food shortage, where, where if you've got to try to feed a spouse and children, it's going to be a lot harder. Or if you've got to flee from persecution or a war zone, it's going to be more difficult if you've got a family in tow. If a plague sweeps through your town and you've got to uh, care for your, your husband or your wife and your kids, that's going to be difficult. And if those sound far-fetched to you, if those situations seem unrealistic, that's because we're modern Western people and we live in relative ease. But for many people... Many people in our world, these are really practical things to consider. So Paul's talking about a serious crisis, and he's saying singleness would be a practical advantage in that situation. But he doesn't stop here. This is what he says in the next paragraph. He he takes a wider view and talks about the kingdom of God. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now what in the world does that mean? Let me try to explain. You ever have a case of senioritis? You're in school, you know, you're, you're about to graduate, you've already got a job lined up, or you've been accepted to a college, and, and you've got a couple of months still to finish out uh, in the school year. What happens? You just stop caring. Doesn't matter. You know, you used to stress so much about your grades. You thought they were so important. But now you know, you know where you're going, this isn't that big of a deal. They're much less weighty. Or you used to care all about the opinions of these people around you because what they thought about you would make or break your situation. But now you're headed to a new community. You're thinking much more about how you're going to be received there than what these people think about you. In a sense, you go to class as if you were not in class. You socialize as if you were not part of the scene. You mourn over bad grades, but you know they're not that important. You rejoice over your good grades, but you know in a few years you're not going to even remember what you got. What Paul is saying is that followers of Jesus should catch a good case of senioritis. In this passage, Paul lists a number of things. He says they seem to matter a lot right now, but you know what? They're not going to matter that much in the kingdom. Money and stuff won't last, so don't act like they will. Treat them uh, as tools for the sake of the kingdom. The, the roller coaster of our emotions, the, the that sorrows and the, the joys of our life. We, we can celebrate our successes right now, but we can't let them define us. And we can weep over our, our losses, but we know that they're not going to get the final word. They're not going to last. 
Paul includes something, though, in this list that's pretty unexpected. He says marriage is one of those things we should not treat as permanent. Look at verse 29. He says, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Now, obviously, this is a hyperbole. Uh, He's overstating things to make a point. He's not just saying, you know, ignore your wife. Like, good luck using that one, husbands, okay? What he's saying here is don't act like marriage and family are the ultimate things in life. Uh, They are not things that we should be living for. Uh, Jesus is really clear. We are not going to be married in heaven. One point in the book of Matthew, he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And he's saying this as part of a conversation to prove that a woman who has been married multiple times is not going to have all of them as her husband when she gets to heaven. He's saying marriage won't be a thing there. It will have already served its purpose and gone away. So here's the kind of senioritis we're supposed to have with regard to marriage. The the current system tells us, you know, if you want to have a fulfilled life, you need romance, you need sex, you need a spouse, and you need kids. You got to have these things. But here's the thing. The current system isn't going to last forever. Verse 31 says, this world in its present form is passing away. When Jesus comes back, he's going to redesign the whole system. And in the system that's coming, it will matter far more that you gave yourself away in service to other people than just with sex to your spouse. It's going to matter far more that you are united with God and his people, not just to your husband and wife. It's going to matter far more that you multiplied yourself spiritually, not just biologically. These are the things that make a fulfilled life in the kingdom. Now, you can have both. You can have romance and marriage and kids right alongside evangelism and service and the family of God. They're not mutually exclusive. But in the current system, if if you've got these things, marriage and kids and family and all that, you can convince yourself that even though you don't have these things, you're living a good life. But in the kingdom, that's a waste. But if in the kingdom you've got these things, you've got service and evangelism and the people of God, even if you don't have these things, God's going to say that's a glorious, beautiful life. All of the citizens of heaven are going to rejoice over a life like that. So here's where single people fit into all this. Single people who are sold out for Christ uh, make these kingdom priorities and values much clearer. Uh, When I was in high school, the the school that I wanted to go to and eventually went to for college was actually in my hometown. And so I had a friend who graduated before me, and he went to that college before I did. But because he was still in town, we would hang out together. His name was Dan, and we would get together. Uh, And sometimes I'd be talking to Dan about things in my high school world that were really stressing me out, things that I thought were a big deal. And he would say to me, he would remind me, he said, look, Clayton, don't, don't forget. Like, they seem important now, but they're not as big a deal as you think. Like, the grades aren't going to last, but what you learn will. B- being cool, not going not gonna to matter, but being a good friend will. Uh, don't stress about the things uh, that seem important now. Focus on the stuff that's going to matter where you're going. So Dan acted as a reality check for me. He, he pointed out things that I knew were true, but the fact that I could see him, he, in a sense, he was a picture of my future life, it made it much easier to recognize and believe the things that really mattered. Now, it may sound weird to say this, uh, but single people who, who are committed to Christ, people who, who Jesus calls the people who choose to live like eunuchs for the kingdom, in a sense, those people are, are living a little bit more in the future than I am. They're closer to what the kingdom will be like, where marriage and sex and childbearing have come to an end. See, it's so easy for married people to think that the end goal of life is to have a happy marriage and successful kids. And as nice as those things are, they are not heaven. 
And single people who focus on the kingdom, they, they remind us that our hope is in the kingdom, not in our spouses. That our marriages don't exist for our sake, but for the sake of the world. They're like Dan, our college student, who comes back and says, hey, remember what, what's going to matter in the future, not just what seems important now. And, and so my question for single people here is, are, are you showing those things? Does your life reflect the hope and the priorities of the age to come? Are you showing the kingdom? Let's look at the second purpose of singleness. Let's keep reading in verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This verse tells us what, that singleness is for seeking the kingdom. Singleness is for seeking the kingdom. Now, the key to understanding this paragraph is figuring out what Paul means when he says, a married person's interests are divided, uh, but a single person has undivided interests. Because when it comes down to it, this is what Paul is saying is the key advantage of being single. So what does this mean? Does it mean that a married person cannot be fully committed to God? Of course not. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't be recommending singleness. He would be requiring it. He doesn't want anything to stand in the way of your relationship with God. Uh, does he, Paul mean here that a married person's life is more complicated than a single person's? Maybe a little bit, but I don't think that's the main thing he's talking about here. You know, I, I've heard some people say things like, well, you know, when you're single, things are simpler. You've got more time than married people do, you know. But, but think about that. Is that actually true? Like, technically, everybody's got the same amount of time given to them. But do single people have less responsibilities than married people? Now, there may be a difference between parents and non-parents on this, but when you compare just a, a single person to a married person, the, the single person probably works the same amount of hours as the married person. Uh, they have the same uh, number of home chores and repairs that they've, that they've got to deal with, but they can't share them with their spouse. They, they've got the same number of life decisions to make, but they've got to make them on their own. So I have a hard time thinking that what Paul is saying here is, you know, single people have more time and energy than married people. I just don't think that's true. Now, when Paul says that single people are undivided, I think it means at least two things. First is this. I think it means that single people have more emotional bandwidth to share with people beyond their spouse. Now, I actually got this phrase from a woman in one of our focus groups that I talked to about this series. She had previously been married and she was single again. And she was comparing her experience then and now. And she said that it was as if she had, you know, this much attention and emotional energy to give to other people. And when she was married, a large chunk of it was devoted always to her relationship with her husband. And that actually was the right thing because that's kind of what marriage means. It means the first and the biggest portion of your emotional relational energy is going to go to this person and this person alone. But what she said is after her marriage ended and she processed through that loss, the, the bandwidth started to get freed up. Uh, because of that, she felt like she had uh, more empathy to offer, more service and attention to offer to a wider range of people. She had a flexibility to respond to needs that uh, arose around her uh, when before she had a lot less to give to others. Uh, marriage is kind of like a large program that's always running in the background of a computer. It's using up memory, and it might be a great program, uh, but when you shut it down, that memory can be deployed for other things. So here's the thing. Every single person 
Every single person was designed to give themselves away. That's part of what it means to be human. You are meant to give yourself to other people. Uh, Married people are required to do this self-giving in large part towards their spouse. Uh, This commitment to give yourself to this one person throughout your life uh, is an image of God's love, God's committed, loyal love to his people. But single people are also designed for self-giving, but they are free to do their self-giving towards a wider range of people. And this actually shows God's love in a different way. It, It shows God's universal, expansive love for all that he has made. Now, of course, this this isn't automatic. A a person can turn their attention inward and use up all that emotional bandwidth on themselves. And this is often what happens when people get stuck in a a cycle of self-pity and shame, especially over their singleness. But when a single person is set free by the gospel and, and they get to a healthy place where they can look out to the needs of other people, that increased bandwidth is an incredible blessing, an incredible gift to the people in their community. Second thing that I think Paul is talking about here, when he says that a single person's interests are undivided, is that the single person has more freedom to take risks for the kingdom. I remember the first time I was on an airplane uh, by myself after uh, I had gotten married. It was a few months after that. And I'm not normally afraid to fly, but for some reason during takeoff, I had this kind of overwhelming rush of fear. And why was that? It's because I suddenly had the thought, if this plane goes down, This is not just my death. This affects someone else really profoundly. Now, flying is not particularly risky, but it was the first time that I realized, you know what? My life is bound up with another person, and every risk I take is a risk she has to take too. And I've got to consider that when I make decisions. What this means is that single people have an advantage when choosing to do courageous things for the kingdom. Think about it this way. Uh, If you approach two people, one single and one married, and you tell them about this incredible opportunity, uh, there's this chance to plant a church with a group of people uh, where there are not a lot of Christ followers in that culture. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be risky, but it's going to be so worth it because these are people who need the gospel of Jesus. Now, in order to say yes to that opportunity, both the single person and the married person have to answer one question first. They've got to say, am I willing to take this risk on for myself? Is is this a cost I am willing to pay? Now, let's say that both people hear that and they say, yes, it is worth it. I'm willing to take that risk. The single person at this point has made the decision. It's easy for them to say, okay, I decided for myself. The decision is made. They can move forward with it. But the married person who says, yes, I'm willing to take that risk, then has to ask another question. They have to ask the question, am I willing to take this risk on behalf of my spouse. Will I let them bear this risk? And if they've got kids, they've got to ask the same thing for their children. Will I make them bear this risk? Now, the answer may still be yes, but the decision is more complicated. That's what Paul means when he says a married person's interests are divided. Now, understand this. I am not saying that if you are single, then God is saying you can take all the risks and the married people, they can play it safe. Not at all. Uh, All of us, everybody who follows Jesus as Lord, is called to make sacrifices and costly moves for the kingdom. All of us. But I think all else being equal, a single person has an advantage of being able to say yes easier than the married person when it comes to risks for the kingdom. It is far easier for a single person to decide that they're going to downsize in order to free up financial resources to give them away. It's far easier for them to decide to move into a dangerous neighborhood or country. It's far easier for them to decide that they're going to travel internationally uh, to reach people with the gospel. 
I mean, think about it this way. It is really normal for people, even non-Christian people who are single, to say, you know, one of the things I love about my singleness is I get to travel and I can go on adventures. I got a lot of freedom to do that. Maybe God has an adventure for you if you're single. And maybe you'd consider uh, taking on an assignment for a season that would be, be difficult, or maybe spending an extended period of time overseas. Actually, if you're interested in that idea, we've got a, a program here at the church that we don't talk about too much, but it's really cool. It's a, a program called Go Journey. Uh, it's where we send people uh, to someplace overseas for uh, a month to a year at a time. It's kind of like a, a go team on steroids. And, and maybe you'd consider doing that. Maybe that's an adventure you'd like to have. Here's something that I've pondered many times. I've wondered, you know, why in this era are there so many more single people than there ever have been throughout history? And why are there more single Christians than there ever have been throughout history? And here's what I wonder. It's just speculation, but I wonder. Maybe God wants to do something really great in our time, in our generation. And we're going to need plenty of people who can take risks and embrace sacrifice for the kingdom. And God knows that single people who have been set free by the gospel, those are the best candidates for those kind of assignments. Like, what if you're single for a purpose? What if there is a reason the church needs you here and now in this time? How will you use your singleness to seek the kingdom? Let's look at the last section of this chapter in verse 36. Paul says, If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, then he should do what he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, and he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Uh, singleness is a gift. It's got some serious advantages. Uh, but Paul is really clear. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be married. If you're given the opportunity to get married and you, you want to take it, you are free to do so or not. Uh, there is this uh, universal problem that humans have. Uh, anytime when we try to elevate one thing, there's a tendency to push down other things around it. Uh, so the church has been so passionate uh, about defending the value of family and marriage for so long that it's made single people feel like second-class citizens. But when Paul and others talk about the advantages of singleness, uh, it does not mean that we've then got to push down marriage and family as, that, as if that were something wrong or second-rate. It's not a competition between these two. Both marriage and singleness are gifts. Uh, they're good things that God gives to his people. Uh, both have unique ways to point to God's future kingdom. That we don't need to think in terms of need to or have to when we're talking about these things. You, you don't need to get married because marriage is not a, a necessary component of a full human life. You don't have to stay single because we can please God whether married or single. And if you want to stay single, you don't have to feel pressure to get married. If you want to be married, you don't have to feel pressure not to pursue it. There, there is no shame in being single and there's no shame in wanting to be married. You can choose which you pursue. Now, you might hear that and say, well, that all, all sounds well and good, and, and I, I would love to be married, but the thing is, I, I'm not choosing to remain single. I just, you know, it's not like I'm passing up opportunity after opportunity. I, I'd love the chance uh, to say I do. 
So here's what I want to do. Uh, very briefly, I, I want to talk a little bit about seeking a spouse. I know that last week I said this is not a series on dating uh, or on prepping for marriage, but this is a question that a lot of single people ask. Uh, and so what I want to do is actually do kind of a lightning round. I'm going to knock out five myths uh, about uh, dating and marriage uh, real quickly uh, before we end here. So you ready for this? All right, myth number one. God has the one picked out for me, okay? There is no such thing, I had to break it to you, there is no such thing as a soulmate. That is not in the Bible. Uh, God has not designed the one perfect match for you that you must marry. Okay, think about it. In this passage, Paul says, you know, if a man feels he ought to marry, he doesn't say he ought to seek out the one designated for him or else he's going to be unhappy for the rest of his life. Okay, that's not in the Bible. That's not how it works. Myth number two, I should only go on a date with someone I think I could marry. Now, this one is tricky because it's kind of close to the truth, okay? Uh, you should date knowing that the end goal of the dating process is marriage. Uh, if you have that in mind, it's going to prevent you from doing a lot of stupid things that would sabotage any future marriage you might have. But that doesn't mean you can't go on casual dates just to get to know someone, even if you don't know if they're a good match for you yet. Uh, what you shouldn't do uh, is date someone that you know you couldn't or shouldn't marry. Uh, no matter how lonely you are, no matter how good-looking they are, no matter how into you they are, it is not worth it. You don't have to be ready to pop the question to go on a date with someone, but if you already know the answer is no, don't waste your time. Uh, myth number three, I'm single because I'm too picky, okay? Uh, this is actually something that uh, married people often say to single people, you know, oh, you, your standards are just too high. Uh, and maybe, maybe there are some people like this, but I actually see a lot more people making the opposite mistake, uh, lowering their standards, not keeping them too high. In verse 39, Paul says, a woman is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Uh, what that means is minimally, minimally, the people you date and the person you marry must have a relationship with Jesus that is central to their life, that shows up in how they live. Now, now pay attention to this, because what this means is you, you should not date or marry someone just because they say they are a Christian. If it doesn't show up in their life, I don't care if they say they're Billy Graham, don't date them, Okay. It also means do not date or marry someone who says, you know, I, I, I'm not real religious, but I am interested in, in, in getting more serious about my faith. If they say that, make them prove it, okay? Come back in six months and see if there's been some follow-through and then consider a relationship. But, but I'll be honest, I, I actually hear this probably, you know, every other week or so talking to people here at the church. They say, oh, I'm dating this person. They say they're really interested in learning more about God. I'll just be honest with you. Most of the time, that's empty words. It doesn't follow through. And it doesn't turn out well for those relationships. It breaks hearts. It's not worth it. This also means do not date or marry someone who claims to follow Jesus, but has no problem doing things that Jesus says you shouldn't do, like having sex before marriage, or moving in together before you get married, or saying, you know what, because both of us have been married before, it's okay if we sleep together. I know this is so hard, but do not lower your standards. Now, even if you really want to be married, it is not worth it in the long run. As long as you're single, use your singleness to, to show the kingdom and seek the kingdom. And don't undermine that uh, by going out with someone who isn't trying to do the same thing. Myth number four, if I stop trying, then I'll find someone, okay? Uh, lots of people say this, but when Christ followers say this, usually what they're doing is making a false dichotomy. They're saying, you know, I've got two options. I can either actively try to find a spouse or I can trust God to find a spouse for me. 
And they get worried if they get put too much energy in over here that they're not leaving things in God's hands. But here's the thing, those are not opposites. Uh, Think about it this way. Just because you actively go out and buy lunch doesn't mean you're not trusting God with your next meal, okay? So when it comes to pursuing marriage, it's not an either or. Uh, God is not against you going out and trying to meet people. He's not against you asking your friends or your family to set you up with someone. He's not even opposed to online dating. Those are all okay in God's book. Now, you might not feel comfortable with those those things or want to do those things, and that's fine. Uh, But God's not saying don't actively seek a spouse uh, because it wouldn't be trusting me. Here's the fifth one. Once I am truly satisfied in God, he'll bring me a spouse. Actually, this one's true. That's how all the rest of us who got married found their spouse. (laughs) Even the atheists, they were so satisfied in God, that's how they found a spouse. Here's the thing. God is not teasing you. He's not saying, look, if you just, if you just prove to me that you love me the best, then I'm going to give you what you want. You know, if you're just a, a little bit more devoted, a little bit more spiritual, then, then maybe you could have this thing. It's not how God works. God is not holding back good things from you. God is not a stingy God. He, he has already given you something good. Whether you are single or married, God loves you, and your status is a gift from God. It might not be the gift that you wanted or the gift that you asked for, but God loves you and he knows you and he wants what's best for you. And this is the gift that he's picked out for you right now. Whether you are single or married, God wants you to live out your life for the sake of his kingdom. Both states have ways of pointing to God's kingdom, showing what it's like in different ways. Whether you're married or single, this is where your hope lies. Your hope lies in the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. That the world in this present form is passing away, but his kingdom is coming and it will never end. That is where our hope. We're going to sing a final song here that expresses our trust in Jesus in this way. As we do that, we're going to collect our gifts and our offerings. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for every single person here in our community who's a part of Christ Community Church. I want to pray that you would bless them, that you would uh, reach way down into their hearts and convince them what we talked about last week, that they are not incomplete, they are not alone, and they are not forsaken, that they would experience your love and your goodness in the deep places of their heart. God, I pray that you would call them to the things we've talked about this week, to show what the kingdom is like and how they live, to seek the kingdom and the risks that they take. God, I pray that you would uh, release the single people here to do amazing things for you. God, I pray that this church would be a place where every person, single or married, would say, I am welcome here, I am valued here, I am used here, I belong here. I'm a treasured gift in the kingdom of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.